This is The Strategist, episode 994. My name is Zane Velger. With me, as always, Corey Hogan, Stephen Carter. Guys, what's going on? Carter, you are back. I canceled three meetings. You canceled three, three meetings. Were me. they all in a chicken suit outside of a constituency office? Is that what you recall <laughs> a meeting these days, Carter? Because you have been away for a while, and we're wondering what you've been up to. Yeah, I was uh, I was standing in a chicken suit outside of Dairy Queen in Surrey, uh, you know, spinning one of those signs. Business went up, I think, 11%. Well, listen. So things really working out for me. Wasn't the suit, yeah. wasn't the sign. It was your spinning. I've seen you spin. Uh, we've seen you I'm do. I've seen you do it on this podcast. It's 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 part of your, yeah. uh, it's part of your repertoire. Uh, Corey, how are you been doing? I've been good. I've been good. I didn't have to rearrange meetings. I just took lunch at a different time, so I've got that going on. Apparently, um, I've, I've got the ability to adjust on the fly more than Stephen Carter. Nice to see you both. Uh, I can't help but note this is not our usual Sunday night time or Monday night backup time. So. This, this is fine. This yeah, is a we, time, and that's as best as we're going to do for this audience. Honestly, I think that's yeah. fine. Right, Carter? I mean, really, if people haven't been following along, they know that we're – this is the most consistent we've ever been. I think this is incredible. The last incredible. two months stint is insane. So and, and now, you know, now you know what happens now, right, Carter? Corey thinks we're going to be this consistent going forward, and, and he is in a world of hurt because he does not know my no. summer schedule, and he is going to be really pissed off by it. No, I had to talk him down this weekend. I had to call him and calm him. I, I spoke in my calming voice. I don't have a calming voice, it turns out, but I thought I did, and I, uh, I was incorrect. I'm glad you brought that up because, Carter, you know, we don't talk about other podcasts on this show, other inferior podcasts on this program. Uh, but I do want to give a shout-out to uh, this podcast's own Stephen Carter, who will be appearing on, on West of Center. And, in fact, yeah. um, Carter, you know, West of Center is a CBC podcast host, hosted by Kathleen Petty. Uh, they generally don't release previews, but we've actually been able yeah. to go deep into the state media and get a preview of a Friday show that you're going to be appearing on. Corey, can you play that quickly for us? This is, of course, a quick preview of Stephen Carter, who will be on West of Center uh, this week with Janet Brown and, and David Hurley. Uh, uh, Corey, go ahead, please. Let me tell oh. you something, Dave. Is that David Hurley? I can't tell because he's so fucking annoying. Carter, Carter, is that is, is that who he is? Because let me tell you something, David fucking Hurley, naming the podcast after yourself. How fucking arrogant. How arrogant to name a podcast after yourself. We said we were the strategists because that's what we did. That's what we do. In fact, that's what we're doing right now. Who won an award? I won an award. Fuck you, David Hurley. Fuck the curse of politics. You know, you spun off your own show because your first show sucked. Fuck off. Oh, hey, Scott. So anyways, I, I think Friday Friday might be a bit uh, more challenging than I was thinking. I didn't remember it that way. I did not remember it we that did. way. And that's why we played the clip, Carter. That, I'm not going to lie to yeah. you. I think I've been invited because I did that clip. Because I think <laughs> the Kathleen Petty is not a nice person and she wants to see what, what will happen if the two of us are together. Uh, it's going to be brutal. We're going we're gonna to tune in on Friday. Let's move it on to our first segment, our first segment, free range chicken shit. Carter, we have to talk about it because no other Canadian podcast can, no other Canadian podcast would troll their own audience for as long as we're going to. Stephen Carter, we have to talk about the chicken suit. We have to talk about the chicken suit. For those that, that don't know what the fuck we're talking about, Carter, explain to me what the chicken suit is, 
what it was. And I'm going to actually use this as a, as a launching off point to talk about uh, political tactics. But for those that don't know what I'm talking about, lay it on us. Well, I mean, the chicken suit is a it is a person in a chicken suit, life size. Well, not life size, a human sized chicken suit. And the uh, the chicken was dispatched to go and ask Doug Ford why he didn't want to to debate. Uh, I think everything is Doug Ford, yeah. And uh, needless to say, it was a interesting strategy that we get to talk about because now there's a life sized human being going around and stalking uh, Doug Ford on behalf of the Ontario Liberal Party. That's so. Um, so let's fill it. Let's right? fill in some I details. I, right. I, I trusted Carter yeah. too much with that, Corey. Corey, do you want to fill in? <laughs> yeah, you did. I, I, I don't know what you're thinking. <laughs> I was going to say. It's, 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 you <laughs> pretended like it's a thing now, that yeah. it's just a thing. Corey, please. That's what we do Help here. Us yeah. Help us out here. Uh, the Ontario Liberal War Room last week released a video um, on social media of somebody in a chicken suit um, going around to constituency offices of local candidates saying, local candidates too chicken to meet. They're all hiding right now. And um, and the video had production values you would expect from something that includes the words chicken suit in the <laughs> title. And on top of that, um, the person couldn't uh, now I'm just nitpicking, but they were doing the chicken dance, but they weren't doing the chicken dance. They couldn't even do the chicken dance. Right. Uh, but it did seem to be one of those things that immediately drew the entire Internet's criticism because, uh, you know, you had supporters of the Ontario Liberals saying, please stop. This is embarrassing. You had opponents of the Ontario Liberals saying, this is exactly what we mean when we say you aren't serious so much for Del Duca's purported, I want to campaign on issues. And then you had just the general public trying to hide from such cringeworthy content. Um, pretty, pretty typical thing to happen, I think, in the last week of a campaign for people to lose all perspective. But I, I, that's maybe your point, Zane. Like, there's a lot you can pull out of this. Uh, it was not their finest hour. Might have been their least fine hour of the day. Carter, so how is that different than what I said? It's exactly the I same. I mean, fundamental well, details. Who put like... it out there? Why it was put out there? <laughs> what the video showed? These are some of the things we like to do on this show, Carter. No, it feels like a lot of Yeah, no, too. we are moving the show in the wrong direction. I agree with you completely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Carter, you know, okay, I have to ask you this. Talk to me about the tactic. And talk to me about the tactic from a campaign that's clearly behind, right? They, The message they're trying to send is, Show up and debate us. What are you afraid of? Stop being so chicken to debate us. Stop not showing up to community debates, candidate X, candidate Y of the PC party. What do you make of that that tactic? And it's clearly, you know, a reference to, to some West Wing episode, I believe, in the in the latter seasons, Carter. Yeah. But talk to me about the tactic. Talk to me about its efficacy and what is it trying to do and 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 uh, give me your, your perspective on it from a from a strategy lens. What what is it trying to do? I think what it's trying to do is is to generate some sort of, um, you know, uh, outrage about the 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 PCs choosing not to debate. Right? It's it's designed to get some attention on a on a topic that the liberals think that they can win on. Except the problem is that no one gives a shit if people show up to debate. The people, I mean. If there was a debate in your local community, it might draw 150, 200 people, but it's not going to actually change the outcome of any election um, because most human beings, especially the less engaged human beings, don't actually go to a debate. So, And on top of that, no one's voting question is, I wonder if this candidate debated all the other candidates because if they didn't debate, then I don't want to be anywhere near them. So right, I think that, right. you know, it's this fundamental uh, disconnect between 
um, a party who thinks that they've got something that they can win on versus something that is actually a winning issue. Uh, so going out and, and putting, first of all, the fact that you had to put some poor human being into a chicken suit to go to these events, I mean, that's just sad. Um, there's a, there's a volunteer who, who feels less about themselves today, right? Who feels like they're a less, lesser person, um, who were, whose dignity was, was attacked, uh, by their own, by their own team, um, which was upsetting, for, I think, for everybody. But, it, it, you know, in terms of a winning strategy, there is no winning strategy from putting uh, a volunteer into a chicken. I, I want, I want to actually uh, hang on that question for a second. Uh, but Corey, I want to get your take on this because if that, if what Carter said was the point of the tactic, simply to call out one of the parties for not sending local candidates to debates, there was many ways to do it. You weren't inside that liberal war room. None of us were, thankfully. But what do you think the conversation there was like around why this would be a, a good idea? Like, we, you know, give me a sense of how people may have triangulated towards this as being a tactic, because I, I agree with Carter, but I think there's more here that they thought they would be getting, whether it was a sense of virality or people chuckling or trying to make a point uh, with sense of humor. What do you think they're trying to go for in a, in, a, in a perhaps even slightly deeper sense? So there's two answers to the question. First, let's let's talk about the chicken suit, the history of it, because yeah. it's, it's not a West Wing thing. The West Wing um, episode you were talking about, I'd never seen. Carter sent the clip around earlier today. Yeah. Uh, but that in itself was a reference to something that actually happened in the 1992 U.S. presidential election. So That's right. there was a there was a situation where um, George H.W. Bush was not agreeing to the Commission for Presidential Debates terms. And so uh, it looked like maybe he was going to try to avoid the debate. And uh, Clinton organizers started showing up in chicken suits, uh, almost the same as the plot of that West Wing episode, in a sense, mm -hmm. right? Uh, why are you chicken to debate? Why are you chicken to debate? And, and so you can see a pretty clear through line through to this actual Ontario liberal uh, war room tactic, right? The uh, tactic itself went viral in 1992 standards people were showing up in chicken suits of their own volition at a certain mm -hmm, point to events mm -hmm. and it was being covered on the news and the and the you know the media was tracking it both in the background and the campaign was getting reports on it the bush campaign tried to reciprocate by sending people in duck suits to uh bill clinton's events because he was ducking the draft and i think that's basically when the originality of this concept died and it's been fucking dead for 20 years uh, as a result. But um, so they were looking at that. And as students of politics, I suppose, they said, boy, we got this thing. People aren't talking about the fact that the PC candidates are not coming to debates. They're mm, they're mm -hmm. ducking it. And I'm sure somebody said, well, you know, and I would bet money they referenced the West Wing episode instead of the actual history in 92. I'm sure this they is did. a way you can, you know, that was brought up that you could bring attention to to the particular issue and they move forward. But um, they, this is a perfect example. And now let's be clear. Let's be charitable. The yeah. war room's job is not to drive the campaign message day in, day out necessarily. It's to pull up dirt on the others and, and, you know, take these elbows to them. But still it was a little unfocused. Um, and it certainly had an awful <laughs> huge opportunity for backlash as we saw. I think that if they had just tested it with normal people in their orbit, they would have seen they had a dud, like a total fucking mm. dud. I guarantee you there were people in that war room watching it who kind of cringed watching it, right? And somebody should have spoken up and said, it's kind of trash content, guys. Let's not do it, right? And, uh, man, I want to take this in a million ways right now, but there's two things I want to say off the bat. 
in the war room, somebody should have caught it. The whole reason why planes have co-pilots is in case, you know, it doesn't work unless somebody speaks up and says, what are you doing? You're going to crash the plane. That's the yeah. whole reason we put two pilots in a plane. Same with war rooms. And the second is talk to somebody outside your bubble because that bubble gets really pretty severe, pretty thick by the time you hit the last week in a campaign. And Carter, this is what I wanted to talk about is, is the efficacy of these tactics, why we are in – why we have still, you know, despite the creativity of digital, still have such a tiny toolkit. Why campaigns really haven't, and, and you might disagree with this from a tactical perspective, like necessarily innovated the next viral thing. There isn't one every election. We kind of go back to, to safe and comfort, even on the digital side of the types of campaigns we create. But before I get to that, you know, Carter, I want to test this with you. How much of this was to do with the fact that Del Duca was behind and looked desperate? Like, had the Ford campaign done this, a campaign out in front that was winning, that was sending their candidates, could this have been seen as, as folksy or charming? And, and this is, you know, a conversation I was having with someone that, that we both know, and I'm not going to out them on the podcast if you think their, their analysis is terrible, but they were ultimately saying, you know, if Ford had done this, I think he'd gotten away with it. I think he would be totally fine that people would have seen it through a lens of, you know, everything he does is, is, is funny. He's not taking himself too seriously. How much of this, in your mind, Carter, What's to do with Del Duca losing and this looking desperate? Well, I mean, it, let's be clear. The campaign that's in first place would never do this, ever, um, because it's not a candidate. It's not a tactic that would be done by someone who's in first place. You know, you, you only do this when you're in, you know, like there's there's an old school of thought that says that the campaign that goes to negative campaigning first is losing. I don't think that that's necessarily true anymore. Mm. I think that most of us load up our compare and contrasts right off the bat um, and, and try and, and, you know, brand the other person the way we want them branded, even if we're being uh, positive or even if we're in first place. But there's no need to do this tactic if you're in first place. Um, so. You know, Doug Ford never does this because he's in first place. Um, Stephen Del Duca uh, looks like the exact wrong person to do this, right? Like there is no folksy charm that could get away with it. There's no, oh, shucks, you guys know that you guys knew we were going to be bringing a chicken out at some point. Um, I think I promised a chicken for every house, you know, or every pot or whatever, a chicken in every pot. You know, like somebody, he could have made a joke about it and it could have been folksy, except Stephen Del Duca doesn't know how to make a joke. He's not folksy. So without that there, mm. I'm not sure that he can actually succeed. Um, so, you know, to your point, uh, I disagree with the idea that um, I disagree with the idea that Ford could have done this better because Ford would never have done it. Um, but, but also, I just disagree with the tact. Yeah, I think that, you know, your, to your earlier point in your, your question, why are we so bad at this? Because we're not recruiting the right people. We don't recruit people from every day. You know, there's far too many people who are who are in the inside core that are constantly brought into existing campaigns that are just campaigners or they're young or they're true believers. And if you've staffed your war room or you've staffed your communications team with nothing but true believers, you are going to lose the next election because your true believers don't have anybody to check them and say, well, that's a fucking stupid idea. That's why we have Corey here, right? So I can say to Corey, that's a fucking stupid idea. And we're not on the same team. I agree. Right? That's, yeah, that you need to have that I disagree moment. Corey brought it up earlier. If you don't have someone who's willing to say, you know, that the, your idea sucks, uh, then you're going to go forward with every shitty idea. 
We see it a lot in the NDP. We see it a lot in the uh, conservatives. And now we've seen it again in the uh, in the Ontario. Liberals. You know, Corey, what do you make of this? If, you're, if your team is winning, everything kind of looks good. It's viewed charitably, positively, can be viewed through like a folksy lens. If you're losing, you look like you're losing. Everything looks bad. It looks like you're desperate. Do you feel like this would have played differently had it been from someone like Ford or someone who was looking uh, like they were in a position of strength? Yeah, of course. And it speaks almost to motive, right? Uh, in, in some ways, it's hard to pretend that you're lighthearted when you're clearly back up against the wall and there's right. clearly sweat on your brow. And do you think for people some... see motive, though? Like they can they can sense motive oh, you, with a piece like that? Yeah, you, for sure. You can you can tell that's not coming from a position of strength or lightheartedness. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's just not, not going to carry through in the same way. But it, beyond that, I would say something that I often talk about in in the corporate communications world is that when you get down to it, you break into three categories, right? There's the message, there's the medium, and that includes the visuals and all of the choices you make around there. And then there's the messenger. And people forget Mm. about that third one a lot because the way a message is received will be very different depending on who you are, which is kind of your point, but I want to broaden it a little bit further than that. What's your level of trust with people? What's What's your reputation going in? Have you said things in the past that absolutely take you out at the knees? I mean, because Del Duca did literally the day before he would say no gimmicks. And then his campaign released a gimmick of somebody in a fucking chicken suit. Right. And that becomes very easy to throw back in his face as a hypocrisy. So, uh, You've got to think about your own personal brand when you're communicating as well. And you can only push that brand so far. And it's something that politicians would do well to remember. You can't just grab tactics off the shelf from the 92 election, not just because it's not 1992, but because you're not Bill Clinton. Right. And so who are you (laughs) and what are the tactics that are available to you? And to be charitable, there are probably tactics available to Del Duca that were not available to Bill Clinton. I was about to say around integrity, but I think people would argue that point. But, yeah, you know, the, the man had a lot of negatives, Bill Clinton, I mean, uh, and there were tactics he couldn't use, too. You've got to think about these things about the players on your team, not just in terms of tactics. You can't can't run a triangle defense or offense with um, with uh, with the absolute wrong set. No, I, I agree. What do you think, Carter? I mean, is Shaq and Kobe. You 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 used to be the Robert Horry of the podcast. I don't know where you are these days. You're more like the you're more like the Caruso, I feel, and that's a compliment. And you yeah. should take it. Yeah, I mean, I'm all defense all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, not, not that's just the way it works. <laughs> Good try. Good try, though. Hey, no, I mean, you had, a, you had like a fifty like percent chance. There. Hey, Corey, talk to me. Talk to me about this, though. Yeah. Talk to me about what what you heard from Carter as it relates to war room staffing. As it relates to why are we in this boot loop of dusting off old tactics and trying to shoehorn them? Like, I, I don't know how many times you've yeah. seen it. I've seen it so many times. Be like, didn't Obama do that? Didn't, isn't that from like 92? Isn't that from like the, didn't the federal liberal, like, why are we, why are we stuck in this weird boot loop? I, I'm curious to get your take on this. We don't, I haven't talked about this that often. Sure. So, so give me, give me your thoughts. Yeah, well, one of the reasons is people want to take successful tactics and use them. And you're right. We see this all the time. We see mm. this with campaign ads that are basically shot for shot of a right. successful campaign ad in yep. you know a different jurisdiction, a different country even. We see this with – well, we saw this with Del Duca when he was talking about if you don't show up for work, you shouldn't get to keep your job, which was just a remix of Jack Layton's famous if you don't show up for work, you don't get a promotion line around question period performance uh, performance in the house. And uh, you even see this with Andrea Horvath right now and uh, the way they're leaning on their 
their high watermark of the last election campaign, dropping pamphlets all over Ontario saying, hey, last election, we almost won. Ergo, we are the only ones that can win mm, this time. Mm, Which, by the mm. way, wasn't a very good tactic the first time when Tom Mulcair was using it. Certainly not going to work again in, in Ontario. Uh, but but people see things they like and they want to repurpose them. And I actually don't fault them for that. I, I don't think that there's a need to be absolutely original on every single situation. But what's important is you, you deconstruct it with enough sophistication that you say this tactic worked for these reasons and we have all of those reasons available to us. And unfortunately, yeah. I don't think that level of uh, sophistication is going into it. When Carter was talking about the war room in general, I, I think this is a bigger point about campaigns. War rooms get worse the longer the campaign goes on. Mm. They absolutely mm -hmm. lose their minds by by virtue of what they do, which is they have to sit there and be pugnacious little fucks. And ultimately, that that makes them not able to view anything except through that lens. Yeah. And it's yeah. important that the war room doesn't lose focus on its actual audience, which is the swing voters in Ontario. There's no way you're telling me that they tested that with swing voters in Ontario. They never would have done it if they did. Yeah. yeah. They need that, thing had, yeah. that thing had the – by the way, other big difference in the 92 campaign. 92 campaign, those chickens were getting up in George H.W. Bush's fucking face. This one, I could almost feel the sweat coming through the screen. I could almost feel them saying, let's like, get this done don't get quickly yeah. and get the fuck out of here before somebody comes outside and says, what are you doing? Right? Yeah. And so who's the real chicken in that situation? Because they that's, didn't go near yeah. anybody on these campaigns. And that's, that's pretty... That's pretty ridiculous. That's a really, really good point, Corey. Carter, you know, I want to talk, I want to leave it on this, this conversation regarding uh, political tactics for just one more round, which is, I want to talk to you about risk, like campaign risk thresholds, because to me, going down and, and looking at tactics that have worked in the past is, is equally a question of risk management and de-risking yourself as it is tactics that have worked, right? No one can ever blame you for doing the shot-by-shot -shot ad that worked for Obama, even if the circumstances were different, versus an ad that was maybe fundamentally different, right? Fundamentally new or creative. It's all on you. It's your original concept. So talk to me. Have we calibrated risk correctly in our modern campaigns, Carter? Um, I think that when you see something like that and, and you're calculating risk of the tactic, um, you know, I think that this is actually a really good example of miscalculating the risk of saying, you know, this isn't going to be risky because it, it was done, done. in 1992. Exactly. Right. Uh, and it was done on the West Wing. Um, so obviously it must work because the West Wing is the best political program ever. So, so um, except it was, it, it, it didn't work on the West Wing. It, it, it barely worked in, in 92. Um, we're miscalibrating the risk because we're ignoring the actual risks. We're, we're not, evaluating the success probability properly. And that frustrates me because the success probability is everything. Yeah. Right. Um, so what is it, you know, and again, at the beginning of this, you kind of asked me, why would they do this? What would the, what, you know, what's the mm -hmm, outcome mm -hmm. that they're expecting? And I think I stumbled a lot because at the end of it, I don't know what the, what they're trying to achieve. It doesn't make sense to me to try this tactic because the tactic is, like, what is it you're trying to achieve? Are you trying to come out of third place and make your way to first? Because this tactic doesn't get you there. So what is it you're trying to actually do? And I do a lot of shifting of tactics, but I don't do things like, like this type of stunt doesn't make sense. Like there is no real upside. The stunts that I do, you know, like we did the signs for the Jyoti Gondek campaign, we put them up 
you know, four months earlier, whatever it was. Well, that was a stunt designed to, to generate name awareness. You can look at the, the tactic and equate it to the strategic outcome that you're trying to achieve. What is this tactic trying to drive except some sort of a perverse win? This is where war rooms go wrong. And Corey hasn't brought this up yet. I gave him two or three different chances to do it. So now I'm going to use his words, right? Campaigns in the last week campaign against themselves. And this is one of those things where the Liberal Party of Ontario or Ontario Liberal Party was campaigning against itself and therefore caused itself pain because it didn't have the right people in the war room or it didn't have the checks and balances that were required to come up with the best possible outcome. Corey, talk to me about risk as we as we end on this chicken suit conversation. Have we miscalibrated risk on political campaigns as it relates to execution of tactics and creativity? Well, you know, that you asked that and I immediately thought that's fascinating because do you think they thought this was a safe tactic? I actually don't, I don't think I don't think it's they a good did. Point. Yeah. Even as Carter responded, I was kind of being like, "Oh shit, yeah, like this is like a risky tactic when you see it in the outcome." But maybe someone convinced him like it's been done before, so maybe it's defanged a bit, maybe it's yeah. de-risked a bit. I don't know, but that's that's a yeah. fascinating question. And um, if that's the case, then they really did take that. There's this old cliche in the consulting world, right? Bitterly said by any single shingle whenever mm. they lose work to one of the majors, right? They'll say, well, it's because nobody ever got fired hiring X, name of big agency, right? That's yeah. a safe option. Yeah. Yeah. The safe option yeah. is the one that the person who's actually doing the, you know, the RFP is just going to go with. Because there's no risk. Uh, so if their own internal corporate politics are such that, you know, the, the risk reward is more on the risk side than the reward, they go with the big agency. Big agencies can throw a ton of resources at things. You're always going to have product delivered, even if it's garbage or even if it's very mediocre. That's that's kind of the criticism that's thrown at big agencies from smaller mm. groups, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, I don't really know that that's what's happening here. I feel like... So I do. I say a lot that in the last week, campaigns run against themselves. And there's a few reasons for that. One is we've talked about, like, they lose perspective, lose perspective, no longer can tell a good idea from a bad idea because they just hate the other guy so fucking much, right? Hate them so much, assume everybody else hates them so much. But you know what? If they did, they'd already be voting for you and you're behind. So yeah. That's just not the case. And you've got to kind of check that fundamental assumption. The other reason campaigns run against themselves in the last week, though, is they run out of things. The pantry is bare. You know, maybe they didn't pace themselves particularly yeah. well. Uh, maybe it's a situation where uh, they thought they did, but they, all of the things they wanted to do are no longer seem relevant after yeah. three weeks of campaigning. Yeah. So you got to find whole new things. And so people just start grabbing shit, right? And they make the mistake of assuming that any action is direction and that any action is beneficial to a campaign. Hey, what are we going to do tomorrow? I don't know. Uh, the boss wants us to get out two pieces of content on the Ontario Liberal War Room. Any ideas? Well, in 92, there was Chicken George, or more likely in 2004, there was a West Wing episode, whenever the year was. Uh, maybe we could do that. Big mistake. Big mistake. Because it assumes that all action is additive. And that is just fundamentally not the case in politics. Carter, let's assess a couple of actions that we saw this week. Let's stick with Ontario. Because there's another tried and tested, and I, I, I hesitate to say true tactic, because its success is varied. But we saw it in the last episode we recorded. Did we not talk about Hail Marys? Did we not talk about yeah. the last minute, fourth and 20, Aaron Rodgers style throws? Well, okay, I, I don't know if you'd classify the leaked memo strategy, Carter, as that. 
but we now have two leaked memos. We have one from the liberals, which is a memo written by, by their pollster uh, or by a polling firm. I don't know if it is their pollster, our good friend Dan Arnold, uh, in yeah. a memo uh, indicating how the liberals can maintain Ford to a minority. It acknowledges some truths about them being double digits behind, but there's a strategic play to maintain a minority. And then, Corey, the NDP leaked memo is less <laughs> a leaked memo. It's more so a, if I'm not mistaken, a a redux of the Mulcair um, campaign 2015 saying, you know, the NDP have the best opportunity to win in these this riding. Here's what it looks like. It shows like a graph of red. It shows a graph of orange. If you collapse here, orange is going to take the day, that sort of thing. Um, I want to get your takes on this, right? Like uh, these were released about a week before the election, maybe eight to 10 days. So in that timeline we were discussing last time we recorded was 10 days before the election. Carter, first, more generally, the leaked memo slash leaked poll strategy. Talk to me about this and then let's get into specifics of does it move the needle at all in Ontario? I mean, it, it very clearly was a media uh, specific. I've never seen. I mean, I've seen stuff that Dan's written before. Uh, this is not the stuff that Dan normally writes. This is something that was written for the public's consumption, uh, especially the media's consumption. So this leaked memo was uh, always designed to be a leak. And it, and it's actually a far more appropriate Hail Mary, I would I would argue, than the, uh, the chickens. Um, you know, the chicken costume hail mary doesn't work but this one actually did it got them the coverage that they were looking for um the media fell for it hook line and uh, line and sinker good for the media but i think that there's a you know did it work overall well i mean it it forced the ndp to put out their their own memo if you will or whatever whatever we want to characterize it as yeah so it must have worked to a degree but um you know, all of this is trying to get voters to vote strategically. And there are a small subset of the voters that will vote strategically. Far more voters vote emotionally. You know, like we're going to fuck this. You know, we want these fuckers out of here is a far better uh, message than, you know, change your vote strategically so that we can get rid of these guys. You know, people didn't vote strategically in 2015 when they moved to to Rachel Notley. They moved to Rachel Notley so that they could show Jim Prentice and the PC party. They could send a message. They could get the leadership. They would show everybody exactly what they were thinking. It was emotional. It had power behind it. It wasn't weak. These these memos at the end of the day, pretty weak. Not a very good Hail Mary. It's like throwing a Hail Mary from the from your own 20 yard line to the midfield mark. It's just really not going to get you over the over the end zone. Mm, that's pretty right? good, Carter. Nicely pretty good, done. Pretty good. No, that's pretty good. good yeah. That's good. It's like a Josh Allen arm. Uh, overrated Josh yeah. Allen, I will say. Corey. Um, yeah, me too. <laughs> uh, give me <laughs> sure. a take on the on the on this leaked memo, leaked poll strategy. It's not the first time we've seen it, and we see, oh, no. we see a version no, of it I mean, in every fucking campaign. Well, like, whether it's local, is fuck. Yeah. Yeah, it's Groundhog Day, right? This is this yeah. is a bit of a thread for this episode, I guess. I don't even think it was a Hail Mary from your own 20-yard line. I think it was a quarterback sneak from your own 20-yard line. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's not... It's Wait, not... Carter, what is that? <laughs> you laugh, now you have to tell you us just... what it is. <laughs> See, I would have gone with a quarterback draw to draw them back and then run through the, ho- the holes that they makes in the line. But quarterback sneak is just running forward and trying to get an extra yard. Okay, fine, fine. Keep, keep going, Corey. He knew, he knew what it was. I'll cut that yeah. out. Don't worry about that. <laughs> We'll make the final cut. <laughs> yeah, cut it out. And then just, just insert the part where he talks about David Hurley. That's good. <laughs> just, that's great. 
Uh, yeah, so we were having a lot of fun when that leaked memo came out. We do all know Dan pretty well. Yeah. And uh, I was I was saying like, oh, geez, do you think, do you think people are going to lose their jobs over this leak? Oh, this is so horrible. There's a leak in the war room of this memo. Can you imagine? People must feel terrible around there. Just awful that this memo leaked. This should probably ruin their entire day. I mean, give me a break. The, the reason it sort of worked... <laughs> Is because insofar as there was a news hook, it was that they were behind, right? It was a concession that they were not going to win. Which well, that maybe, the liberals in this case, yeah, like we're, we're which multiple maybe double was digits not, behind. That was yeah. probably the first time the liberals had said that in any kind mm. of quasi-formal mm -hmm. sense. The whole world knew that. I mean, there has not been a poll that's come out this entire campaign that has not had Doug Ford in the lead, the yeah. Ontario yeah. PCs yeah. in the lead. Uh, I think the consensus is probably around 10 points today. It fluctuates around there. But it was the first time they conceded that they were not likely to win, right? And so that was the interesting news hook of it. I don't believe it would have worked if the leaked memo was, we are for sure going to win, and it's because look at all of these strategic opportunities that might be there. So mm. that news hook was important. So when you think about the tactic, it was a good application of the tactic, I suppose, because there was a reason for the media to jump on it. It wasn't just falling hook, line, and sinker, in my opinion. It's because there was actually something to report that had come out of that, which was the liberal acknowledgement of what we could also plainly see with our own eyes already. The NDP leak is a little bit different and definitely had a lot of a me too energy to it, to your, <sighs> your point. Yeah, saying. yeah, yeah. You see this a lot when one campaign thinks a tactic is utter bullshit and they almost call out the utter bullshit by doing something equally bullshit. This is most commonly seen, I think, with polls. Well, that's yes. a bullshit poll. So let's release our own bullshit poll. And then everyone says, oh, I guess, you know, that's when polls the critical suck. questions start <laughs> yeah. coming. And they're like, well, yeah. I guess polls suck. Right. Yeah. And I guess we can have the, I guess, leaked memos suck conversation coming out of this as well. But ultimately, I do agree with Carter. I think the the machinations of strategic voting or not, um, people, I, I've long held that people are better at intuiting this in their neighborhood than we give them credit for. They can tell by the number of signs that are out there. They can tell by the buzz in their neighbors. Doesn't work air bombed from central campaign. And people know that local campaigns matter. They, they're they not that naive about politics. Car Carter, talk to me about what happens here for Ford. And give me a sense of, is this just smooth sailing? Like we've got, and I don't want to get into another deep dive on strategy, but there is something to be said around strategy or lack thereof. When you're T minus three, four days, soak time for the public is negligible unless it's a massive story a lot of people have already voted how do you ride the clock out effectively i mean i, I could have asked that question three weeks ago for doug ford because he's been doing it but anything special to consider as you ride out the clock and let's say the final 72 hours the final 100 hours of the campaign anything you need to do as, as a front runner that that any traps to not fall into or uh, any engagements to not take uh, as we round this out? And then, of course, I'll get you to predict, Carter. Yeah, well, predicting will be easy. I mean, I think that the big thing is just don't step on your own, uh, on anything, right? Like, don't make a huge mistake. Mm. Um, because ultimately, you know, if, if we go with Corey's idea that at the end, um, uh, at the end, we just don't want to, you know, see a... Uh, you know, something where you screw everything up for yourself, yeah, right? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, and right now it looks like you're going to win the election. Don't fuck it up is, is probably the best way to put it. And more importantly, all of those big numbers in the in the provincial polls mean virtually nothing, 
right? You're going to be looking at 100 plus ridings. Each one of those ridings needs to uh, perform to their maximum or their negative, you know, to minimum. If I were running Doug Ford's campaign, I would just simply drop him into his home riding and have him perform in his home riding. Because there's nothing to be gained in the rest of the in the rest of the province, uh, except potential downfall. Oh, interesting! So you just and get to I run out the clock at home, pretty much. I would because who's your big? I mean, Doug Ford is all is your biggest opportunity, no question. He's a good politician. People seem to like him. He moves around. We we talked about what yeah, about yeah. why we thought that a couple of podcasts ago. Um, but he's also a liability. He's still a Ford brother. Right. Like you never know what a Ford brother is necessarily going to say at any given time. And I would just simply say to if I if I was running the campaign call today, I would say this is now in every constituency's hands. The primary campaign has given you a 10 point lead across the province. It is now up to you to get your votes out Mm. on Election Day. Advanced polls are over. So every campaign focuses only on GOTV for the next three days. I don't want to see a press release go out. I don't want to see an event. I just want calls being made, doors being knocked, people being pushed to the polls. That's all I want to see. And that would be the tactics that I would take when you're literally this far ahead. And I don't see any evidence to suggest that Doug Ford's not um, significantly ahead. Corey, I, I, I like the way Carter answered that question. What would your message on the morning call, either today or tomorrow, be for the troops? Yeah, there's a way to deliver that. I wouldn't go necessarily as far as Stephen, because again, we're all about mitigating risk. I think we agree that at this point, you just don't do anything that's likely to draw radar Mm. and going totally to the mattresses might draw radar. So you've got to have, I think the most minimal campaign schedule that you can say, no, what are you talking about? We're still doing events. Come on, TVO. We're out there. Doug Ford went to four different phone banks today where they were talking. So you've got to have a little bit of that going on and you just pick the ones that are least likely to be controversial in any way, shape or form. Similarly for your local candidates, you don't want any suggestion that a call was put out with 72 hours to go disappear. That would be problematic. I do think on the morning call with the campaign managers, the, the director of the campaign could easily say, well, it's been a good campaign. It's been a long campaign. We are in a situation where we're 10 points up. Now you got to bring it home. I need you to understand campaigns are not won at this point with press releases. Campaigns are won at this point by working the phones, getting your vote out. We are now in GOTV terms, folks. And I don't want to see you using your resources inappropriately or wasting your time when it's all about getting people out the door and out to vote. So it's the same message, but it's delivered in a way that is really more about what you need to do now to win and comes more from a position of strength than a position of weakness. It's we're there. We just got to deliver as opposed to don't fuck it up. And I don't think Stephen was saying don't fuck it up would be the campaign message. But from the central point of view. No, it's GOTV. It's, yeah. it's go do your yeah. work. From the right? central point of view, you're still going to have to do a couple things. But just enough to keep a somewhat credible narrative out there that you're you're still campaigning. I'm going to I'm going to make you guys predict at the end. We're going to leave that segment there. Carter, you know, alternative name for this segment was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, brought to you by Flair Lines. But we didn't go with that. Just so you know, oh, I just wanted to let not, you know. It I had, wasn't, was not brought by Flair I, I just, I just want to let you know that we had that alternative one brought to us by not our sponsor, our sponsor, Flair But it didn't go where you wanted it, it to. It really didn't. <laughs> <laughs> didn't take off. Didn't go where it <laughs> didn't, didn't, didn't do it. Didn't do it, Carter. Um, Carter, you know, on Friday, you're on West of Center with David. Talk to me about your strategy for how you're going to tackle that conversation. I think I'm going to open with an apology. 
And uh, then we see where we Let's going. move it on to our yeah. next segment. Our next segment, <laughs> Rules of Engagement. Guys, I want to talk about two leadership campaigns. I want to talk about the UCP leadership campaign and the conservative leadership campaign with the time that we have remaining, which is all the time. Right, Carter? Because this is a Monday afternoon. Yeah, as long as we want to go. Hey, Carter, here's, here's yeah, the first I topic can. I want to hit on, which is the UCP leadership race. We don't really know the timeline yet. We don't know the rules. So I want to kind of play fantasy rules makers with you guys. You are the oh, UCP. Nice. What are the yep. best set of conditions and rules that you want in place for the best, most advantageous, most useful outcome um, uh, for, for your party? What do those rules well, look like? So start with a few pieces and we'll, we'll yes and and build with Corey and come to like the dream set of rules that this party may want to consider or build for their strategic benefit and upside. I think there's going to be three starting points or three big questions you're going to answer for your, you need to answer for your rules. The first is, are you going to do some sort of uh, one member, one vote or some sort of um, kind of hybrid, if you will. Yes. Um, so points usually is the way that we do them, right? Each riding gets X number of points, a hundred points. And then those points are allocated based on, um, you know, how many votes are, are done with each. So the, the advantage to doing one member, one vote is, is it's very simple. And everybody feels like, you know, membership should matter, right? It shouldn't matter if there's a thousand members in a riding or a hundred members in a riding, like every member gets exactly one vote and one vote only. Um, it shouldn't be diluted just because you live in an area where there's more conservatives, right? So that would be, that's your, that's your first question. Are you going to do points or are you going to do, uh, one member, one vote? And then, then the second question needs to be, um, how long do we need to do this thing over? Do we want to do it over a short period of time or a long period mm. of time? And there's advantages to doing it over a short period of time. Your, your existing membership gets a longer, gets a better say in it. Right. So you've got 60,000 existing members. If you go, uh, right away, then you're able to, um, you know, kind of push it, push it forward. Um, if you want to grow your membership, then the, then the theory is a longer period of time makes the most sense. Um, obviously I've expressed in my bias. Let's do things quicker. Um, I think that quicker is better for most leaderships. Um, but then the third is the, the and this is something that's kind of unique to the PCs or the old conservatives in Alberta, and that is the runoff. Do you want to do a top three runoff? Or do you want to just simply do an STV or uh, so single transferable vote or ranked ballot? Um, those are basically your choices. Uh, you're not going to do a leadership on PR because proportional representation sucks on every level. Um, so what you should be doing is, you know, developing that question, those questions and then answering them. If I was to answer them, I would say, Weighted is better uh, for the actual party if you want to get the best leader to win the next election. Um, it is better to do not to do a runoff, mm. but to do a single transferable vote if you don't want to see those third place candidates coming from behind, right? If you don't want to see, you know, Alison Redford was in second, but she was a long way behind Gary Marr and she won. Ed Stelmack was in third and then overtook uh, Ted Morton and uh, Jim Denning, these kind of preferential, there are these, these runoffs at the end do create some weird outcomes. So 
Uh, and I would go shorter rather than longer. Those would be my kind of answers to the three big questions that I have. So you'd go shorter. Let, let's summarize those. You'd go shorter rather than longer. You would go on the on the point-based versus the one-member, one-vote. What was your choice, Carter? Um, I would go points-based. And then what was your, your third one? Was was related to? Length of time. Okay, so you already got answered that one. Talk, talk, to me about, talk to me about membership cutoff. And, well, and hold on. Be before you yeah, waste yeah. a lot of time on that, that is Go actually ahead. in the UCP bylaws. Okay. Well, Corey, so, let's jump to so, you. So, so tell me what. Yeah. yeah. Tell me what your like dream set of rules are, and then let's talk about the the guardrails they have to work within. Yeah. So the first of all, looking at the terrain as it exists in the UCP. We've got a couple of things to go on. One is the bylaws, which would actually take a fair bit of effort to change and would be a bit dicey mm. to do at this moment. One of the things, uh, and there's not a lot about the leadership contest in the bylaws, but the one thing that it does say is that you're eligible to vote as long as you're a member. Like it, it defines that for a candidate, for leader, for all of these things, it, the membership cutoff is three weeks before, 21 days. Right, right. So that's that's your situation there. I don't know anybody who in their right mind would want to take that on at this particular moment. Um, you mean to fight that or of, change that? Yeah, I like to fight yeah. that or change that because, again, the bylaws of the party, you, you'd yeah. have to have like a SGM in between and then it becomes just a proxy fight and yeah. that just gets really messy. And, and for what? I think any marginal gain would be seen as crass calculation. And when you know that there's already going to be questions in terms of is this a fair process, just best yeah. let that dog lie. Uh, length? Easy. Agree with Carter. Short. Got to be quick for a couple of reasons. One is if you are actually worried about the party being united or not, best not to let these things fester. Best not to let these things go on. Mm. Just do it. Just get it done uh, before you can have any deep acrimonies and long seated grudges beyond what you're already going to have to deal with. Because let's face right. it, they're, they're already in kind of a strange place. Uh, the point of conflict I have with my good friend Stephen Carter is on uh, this point system. It's got to be one member, one vote. When you think about um, where, again, future criticisms may come, here's the thing. If you put in a point system and somebody wins only because they have the cities but don't have as many votes as they do in rural Alberta, you've split your party in two. That's going to be everything that's needed for the Drew Barneses of the world to go out and say, you know what, this party has lost its grassroots ideals. You could win the leadership and lose the party if you took that approach. Uh, the other thing is the default option is going to be one member, one vote. And mm -hmm. so, uh, you know, it's not going to perceive as gaming one way or the other on that. You're just going to have to work within those lines. Uh, and that's that's what I think you got to do if you're the UCP board. Carter, talk to me about talk to me about the the rules as it relates to how they promote the candidates in such a short amount of time. Like, what does it look like if you're one of these campaigns? And And when we talk about short, how short are you thinking here? Like, are you thinking by fall they've got a leader? By the end of summer they've got the leader? What, 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 is, what does short mean to you? Short means uh, probably the second weekend in September. Mm. Um, and the reason for that is I would want to give the new leader the opportunity. So, first of all, I think that short races are better. Um, keeping in mind that, you know, there, you want a lot of candidates in this or you want good candidates in this. You don't want this to be Brian Jean versus uh, – Travis Taves versus, uh, you know, uh, Danielle Smith. You want there to be a number of candidates in there that could actually, you know, help bring the party together instead of breaking it apart. Um, so the more candidates, the better. Um, and the shorter the campaign, then yeah. the more candidates you can get in. Uh, Cause it's just not going to cost as much, right? If you run a, 
six or seven, I've been involved in two or three leadership campaigns that have been nine months plus. And every month there's payments that need to be made. You need a campaign office, sure. you need a campaign manager, you need all these different pieces. All of those pieces cost you real money. And that, that, that's really an obstacle to getting and keeping people in. But more important in this particular instance, the shorter race gives you another option for when you call your general. Right. If you don't call your general, like if you want to have an option of calling a snap after the election, you've got to have the leadership over in early September, end of September at the absolute latest so that that leader can come in and say, I need a new mandate. Boom. We're going to the polls. And I think that that's the only way that you can keep the party together, because if it's Danielle Smith that wins, half the party's going to want to leave. Right. And that half the party that's going to leave isn't given that opportunity if you go to a snap. Hey, Corey, I, I'm going to clarify this point. Is it helpful for the UCP in a short race to have many candidates on stage to make this 15 rather than six? Like, talk to me about like scope and scale. And then like, I also want to talk about cost. Carter said it doesn't cost as much, but also like the entry fee in certain leadership races, for example, a federal one, I think it could be half a million dollars in certain cases. So talk to me about wh what you feel like as it relates to what's a good visual representation for them on stage, <clears throat> more or less. And then like, where would you set the entry fee for something like this? So I think for the UCP, I really like the idea of a lot of candidates. I think we talked about this on the live show. The more candidates there are, I think the less likely that it's splinters. If there's just mm. two candidates in a head up, heads up fight, and one of them is clearly identified as pro Jason Kenny, or maybe urban, and the other is identified as anti Jason Kenny, or maybe rural, you're going to have a bit of a problem. And it might be more difficult to keep the party together down the road. Maybe not an outright split. But maybe a lot of grumbling, maybe your team's not together in a way that you need going into an election. So uh, 15's a bit nuts. I worked on a campaign mm -hmm. in the 2006 Liberal leadership. Uh, uh, we won because it was the Dion campaign. But I'll mm -hmm. tell you, like there were so many candidates. It was so difficult. Like, you know, it, like it was difficult for anybody to pay attention to anything. And it was lucky it was a delegated convention because I'm not otherwise sure how anybody would have managed it. And there's no way the UCP is going to do a delegated convention. So I think you've got to keep it more around five or six. That's probably optimal, in my opinion, there. In terms of like the fee, again, knowing where the criticisms might come informs what I would recommend mm -hmm. here, which is just stick to what it was before. I, I'll have to look at what the 2017 rules were, but it can't look like it's any more prohibitive than before, or like the, the challenge you have is that the, the UCP board is perceived as a pro Kenny board. So yes, you just yes. want to run this thing as kind of as based on precedent and as clean as possible. And so not, not big numbers. That's for sure. Carter entry fee and candidates on state. What's your take more candidates, good and entry free, relatively low. Relatively low. I mean, I agree with Corey. You don't want to have an entry fee that is, um, you know, ridiculously high nor ridiculously low. Mm. So when I say lots of candidates, I don't mean 16. I'm thinking six to eight candidates. Um, six would probably be better than eight, uh, but four isn't as good as six. So right. how do you hit that sweet spot? Well, you probably regulate. Corey's exactly right. Whatever the fee was last time is the fee that should be done this time. Uh, I'm hearing rumors of something higher than, than it was before, something like $200,000. That would be suicide. For the party that would that would keep it. I mean, Danielle and Brian and Travis should have no problem raising that. But that kind of center right candidate, the the the, uh, you know, the, the the people who would be seen like the Doug Schweitzer. Now that he's dropped yep. out, we can just pick on Doug. But the Doug Schweitzer type may struggle with that. 
And that might have even been part of the reason why Doug Schweitzer dropped out. He sees this as a, a campaign um, that doesn't make sense for him because he's hearing that it's going to be more constrained. It's going to be more expensive. It's going to be longer. Things like that. If you start hearing that, you'll start seeing people drop hey, out. Hey, Corey, talk to me about um, talk to me about if, if, if the party nudges people to run. Uh, in the sense of, you know, they want more than less on that stage. They want to showcase that they're not in that trap, as you mentioned, that binary. Do, yeah. do, have you seen in the past that the party's been nudging people to run? And do you feel like that's going to happen in this case? Of course, silently, we may never see it or never, never hear of it. But talk to me about that a bit. Yeah, I mean, parties nudging people to run is fine as long as it's a bit of what I would term like a neutral, broad-based nudging. Hey, I really mm. think you should run. It would be great for democracy just to have more choices. You hear that kind of generic language all of the time in leadership contests, in nomination contests more generally. So, yeah, I'm absolutely. Uh, I think they will do that because that's one of the few ways that they can manipulate the race without being accused of manipulation, right? It's good for democracy to have more people involved. And in general, one of the things you want to do as a party, one of your responsibilities as a party is to support a range of options, right? A range of options for your memberships and a range of yeah. options for your party going forward. It's part of why Stephen said the thing he said about, um, uh, about why you want to run an early race. You run an early race and you have a range of options as a party. You can go right away if it's in your interest to snap. You can give yourself a little bit of time if it's not in your interest to snap. And uh, similarly, uh, you've just got to be looking at all of the various things that are out there and saying, how do I make sure I have as many choices as possible? Carter, talk to me about this three weeks in the UCP compared to the 99 days between the membership cutoff in the Conservative Party and the actual date of the leadership. Talk to me about the difference here and what do you think the ramifications are going to be on the federal side now? Because we've seen quite clearly the Brown strategy was to say, ignore these existing members. Let me sign up as many new ones, sprint to the third. And now you can even see it in a strategy. He's starting to walk back some comments that the base might appreciate. Oh, I'm sorry, social conservatives. I didn't say, I didn't mean you were monsters when I said that. Oh, I'm sorry. You know, I'm a true conservative. What do you kind of make of the dynamics there on the federal side right now? Well, I mean, once the membership closes, all of a sudden, um, you know, you're now in a, in, a, in a conversion mode where you're trying to convert everybody to your side. And it's a, I mean, it's it's tried and true to shift the way that you operate within that model. Um, so, you know, this is a pretty standard play to do that. I mean, you're even watching Pierre Polyev's numbers come down now that the membership, uh, you know, that that's coming from some of the direct attacks that are being made on him. Um as you're trying to switch over voters. So I think that 99 days is far too long mm. to have between the membership cutoff. Um, normally you need at least a couple or three weeks uh, between the membership cutoff and the vote, just to make sure all your memberships are processed. You've got a logistics yeah. problem. You know, who do you know that is a member? Um, if we did everything online, then it's relatively straightforward, but many of these parties still work on a paper book method or paper and credit card method. Uh, paper and check method, mm. paper and cash method, um, all of which are, you know, I've seen, you know, tens of thousands of memberships handed off to the party office uh, with two weeks until the leadership. And they're expected to enter them all into the system and verify that they're allowed to have a membership. I mean, it's a fairly daunting task. Um, so I think that 99 days is too long. I think that two weeks might be too short. So three weeks seems to, for, for me, hit probably the sweet spot 
Um, although I am reticent to give any credit at all to uh, to the UCP ever. <laughs> Corey, what do you make of this 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 nearly hundred day lag between membership cutoff and the actual race? Well, it was at the time a compromise, right, between camps that wanted an even longer cutoff. Basically, if you're not a member right now or imminently, you shouldn't get to vote. And those who wanted to run it to the end. And I think a great example that a compromise is not inherently good, right? This is mm. a classic. You know, if you're in a situation where uh, somebody is is beating somebody senseless and the other person is saying, stop hitting me, the correct solution is not, well, just half hit them. Right. Like sometimes you've got to look at the merits of it and say, no, there's yeah, a, there's a yeah. better way to do this. There's a right and there's a wrong. And we have to fight that distinctly Canadian urge just to say, let's split the difference sometimes. So this does in some ways seem like the worst of both worlds, because there are only so many people and they are of a very certain build who are going to join a political party this far out from the main event. Right? Yes. Yes. Um, and and so when the interest is coming, it's too late. It's too late. You're not going to be able to get that membership. And Stephen's right. We are starting to see some changes. Uh, well, Abacus is tracking some changes in how people are perceiving the candidates, particularly Pierre Poilievre and his negatives going up the longer this goes on. And if you view a leadership contest, particularly a long one, as a crucible that's supposed to actually determine whether they've got the stuff to go the distance, why are you cutting them off? Uh, you know, the participants off so early when one of those really important inputs is can they engage people? And that engagement naturally is going to grow as the campaign comes to a close, right? So three weeks logistically makes sense. 99 days, I don't get it. I don't get it at all. Um, and, and, you know, like, and there's a bigger point here, I guess, which is party membership for decades. And I haven't actually gone into this in depth since about 2011 or so, but party membership's been declining for a long time. Fewer and fewer people are becoming party members. And that's a bit ironic because the individual mm. party members probably got as much power as they've ever had. They're no longer filtered through delegates. It's I'm yes. going to vote this yes. way on policy. And I'm going to vote this way for leader and this way for candidate. Right. And so, I, you know, we, we have decided somewhere along the way, intentionally or unintentionally, to allow parties to be run by these narrower or less representative groups. Um, and I don't know. I don't know why we want to be fostering that further by setting these really long, way out there deadlines. Deadline for the Conservatives is like Friday. It's yeah. really coming up here. Yeah. We're going to leave that segment there, moving on to our final segment, our over, under, and our lightning round. Stephen Carter, how concerned on a scale of 1 to 10 would you be right now? If you are Pierre Polyev's campaign, you see to Corey's point, your negatives are starting to track higher. Patrick Brown is making the uh, the shift. How would you, um, how how bad would you feel? One is, hey, we're chilling. Ten is, listen, this is, uh, this is terror. Well, I mean, if I was on Pierre Polyev's campaign, I probably would require frontal lobotomy. Uh, but this is, to me, a, a, uh, this is a real turning point, and if he's not doing well with existing members, um, you know, we'll start to see what the real membership numbers are in the coming weeks. And if it starts hitting the numbers that were projected, keep in mind that a half million members was at one point projected, then I'd be shitting my pants if I was Pierre Polyev. Because I, I'm not sure that Pierre sold many of those memberships, and the reporting that's coming out, granted, uh, anecdotal, um, is that, uh, you know, you've got... Um, 
a number of people who are reconsidering the Pierre Polyev train and whether or not it'll get them to the destination they're looking for. Uh, Corey, how concerned are you if you're on the Pierre camp right now on a scale of one to 10? I don't think I'm massively concerned um, because there is that baked in 99 day advantage. But, uh, you know, this is an interesting, this is going to be an interesting week. It's going to be a really interesting Mm. week. And I'll tell you, one of the things that I've been sitting here thinking as I've been looking at the Conservative Party leadership coming once again to a head for the third time in X number of years here is that there is this kind of trajectory where the the more extreme voices in the party have more and more power, like we were just talking about. And maybe it's not in Canadians' interest that we keep allowing assholes to make all of the decisions about political leadership here. Mm. Like, I mean, I am putting out a call right now. <laughs> For 100,000 reasonable Canadians uh, to save this bloody country by buying leadership memberships in every party's leadership campaign, regardless of their politics. And don't vote for the worst <sighs> candidate or the most ideologically pure candidate. Vote for the candidate that you're like, well, they're a conservative, but at least, you know, they seem somewhat reasonable. Well, they're a new Democrat, but I think that they understand these economic policies a fair bit. Well, they're a liberal, but they don't seem entirely corrupt, just so I get all three of them in and get their digs in here. It's not the craziest idea. I do worry that we have created these systems where it's so repugnant for people to join the party. And as a result, we are getting the leaders that we're asking for here. So that's just, uh, you know. Okay, well, let's let's uh, fix this. Yeah, Carter, it it presupposes that there are 100,000. Yeah, it it presupposes that there's 100,000 reasonable Canadians. (laughs) And I see no evidence that indicate that there's 100,000 reasonable Canadians. Corey, yes or, so, yes or we no, have Corey, a have, Good luck. I'm going to stick with you, Corey, on this next one. Yes or no, will the UCP have a short leadership race? And I'll, I'll, cla- I'll clarify that with the date before the end of October of this year. Oh, yeah, for sure. I, I would guess maybe even by the end of September or first week of October. Carter, yes or no? Will they have a short leadership It's race? the smart thing to do. It's the right thing to do. It's the only thing that makes sense to anybody with a half a brain. It will be over sometime in November. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen Carter, the ongoing saga between uh, WestJet and Flair Airlines deserves its own special. But I just wanted to get a blood oath to which of the two uh, traveler. Uh, tra- uh, I should even. I said, is it our sponsor or is it our wet? Is it WestJet, Carter? I'm testing loyalties. Where are you at and who are you with? Let me tell you something. Uh, WestJet used to be a low cost provider. Now it is the high cost provider uh, with no service. So I got to come in uh, with our. With our, with our, not our sponsor, Flair Airlines, who uh, may not get you anywhere, but they're charging you less. So I appreciate that. Pretty good, Corey. But I get you anywhere, yeah. charging you less. Have your loyalty shifted? Uh, and if so, we'll need to get rid of you. Corey, over to you. So, first of all, not our sponsor. Yeah. Um, but Understood. second of all, if you're going to look at the case on the merits, you've got three, let's just call it three camps who have different views. Established parties such as WestJet, of course, they would love to strangle Flair and, and just leave it dead on the side of the road before it can get going anywhere. Their demands are deeply unreasonable, right? Uh, meanwhile, if you're Flair, of course, you'd like to be able to do what you want and break all of the regulations and, and play this New England Patriots. Oh, I just misinterpreted the rules bullshit. I'm sorry. I didn't know that you actually meant Canadian ownership when you said Canadian ownership are bad, right? Of course. The, the interesting party here is the government regulator because they've got to take a more nuanced approach here. They want the rules followed. They can't have people stepping over the rules, but they don't want to destroy competition. So mm. expect that you're going to end up with most of WestJet's demands about no more subsidies for them. Don't allow them to fly. Don't allow them to sell any more tickets if you do let them fly. That nonsense. Forget it. They'll be given a transition period, I suspect. 
And uh, they'll be told that they're on double, and this time we mean it probation. Oh, and... my God, Corey. You literally just have to say you're with Flair Airlines. That's all this question was <laughs> for. This was not for a giant explanation. Got Stephen Carter, can, can you talk some sense into Corey here? What the hell? I can't talk any sense into Corey. We've been doing like a thousand <laughs> episodes of this podcast. We found out that I can't talk. I literally said Corey. we'll do a special on this. Thank you for that, Corey. Steven's got to go. Okay, we'll do a special. <laughs> Steven, final question to you. Who will be the official leader of the opposition in Ontario? We know who's going to take the top job. Stephen Carter, as we round out this episode, who will be the official leader of the opposition in Ontario's upcoming election? I, I believe it's going to be the chicken. <laughs> Corey, who will be the official leader of the opposition? I can't top that. So I'm just going to hit the music. We're going to leave it there. That's a wrap on episode 994 of The Strategist. My name is Zane Belger. With me, as always, Corey Hogan, Stephen Carter. We'll see you next time.